0: You're listening to When God Was Queer with your host, Dakota St. Clair. Hi, and welcome back to When God Was Queer for Episode 3, The Holy Me. Today, we're going to take a look at the third gender, specifically the historical evidence that we have, which shows a largely transfeminine third gender priesthood throughout ancient history. Whether it's the Mediterranean, the Near East, Mesopotamia or Mesoamerica, West Africa or South Asia, again and again we find several common factors among these people. Each of these priests, priestesses, shamans, seers, oracles, etc. shared a variety of roles and traits without, as far as we know, ever sharing a common religion, language, or any real level of interaction. These roles, traits, and practices include, among them, life and devotion to a goddess, life actively lived outside of the accepted gender binary, engagement in sex work, often for survival, status as the receptive partner in anal sex, performance of ecstatic rituals, and actual or symbolic castration. Our stories begin today in South Asia, on the Indian subcontinent. A third sex has long been recognized in Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism, and Vedic culture has long recognized the legitimacy of a third gender a standard topic of discussion in ancient Hindu law, medicine, linguistics, and astrology, with important mentions throughout the Vedas, the Kama Sutra, and the Manu Smriti. Now, in the Indian subcontinent, there are the Hijra. They have been variously called eunuchs, intersex folks, and trans women. However, in the Puranas, there are known to be three genders of Deva. The Deva uh, are the spirits of song and dance, and they can be Apsaras, female, Gandharvas, male, or Kinnars, which is seen as neuter or neither. And it's this last term that is largely preferred for usage by the Hijra themselves. Interestingly, in the Ramayana, one of the two great Sanskrit epic poems, Rama, who's the hero, heads into exile into the forest. During the journey, he realizes that his townspeople have been loyally following him. He turns around and rebukes them in earnest, demanding, men and women, please turn back. However, those who are neither man nor woman don't know where to go, so they decide to stay and await Rama's return. And when he does return, years later, they are still there, patiently waiting for him. He's so deeply moved by their loyalty that Rama grants them a boon, which means they are now able to confer blessings on others. Additionally, Rama blesses each one of them, ensuring them that the day would finally come when they would also have a share in ruling the world. And in the Mahabharata, which is the other great Sanskrit epic poem, Iravan offers his lifeblood to the goddess Kali for assurance of victory in war. However, the night before battle, Erevan becomes suddenly regretful that he has never been married, but no woman is going to marry a man who's destined for death the next day. So Krishna, taking pity upon him, appears unto Erevan in his feminine avatar called Mohini, and marries him. The story ends up being vital to the Hijra, who go on, especially in South India, to take this as proof that Iravan is their sacred progenitor, going so far as to calling themselves Aravani's. Every year in Tamil Nadu, which is one of India's southernmost states, the Hijra celebrate their religious festival for almost three weeks, from April to May. One of the key elements of the festival is the reenactment of Krishna and Iravan's wedding followed by Irvan's tragic death in battle. The Hezra then mourn and grieve his death through a series of extremely important rituals involving specific dances and the rending of garments, uh, but most of all, the breaking of their bangles, which in South Asia is a very potent symbolic gesture of grief practiced by widows. There's also a major beauty pageant held during the festiv- festivities, and it's a major time for the advancement and education of Hezra. Uh, there's a lot of work done in terms of advocacy, prevention, and treatment of HIV AIDS, um, the distribution of community resources. And the festival is, of course, the, de- the destination for many Hijra who undertake an annual pilgrimage there, um, but do in fact face a host of dangers along the way. You see, the Hijra usually function as a sort of fortune-teller, but a mendicant one at that. And though they are largely outcasts, they are still feared and respected due to the notorious and lethal curses they are believed able to deliver unto those who dare cross them. It's still a common tradition in many areas of India for a group of hijra to be welcomed into the home in order to have them bless a newborn baby. They are treated with the utmost kindness and respect and are paid for their services. The Hijra are often devotees of Lord Shiva, or Mother Goddess Shakti. However, there is one goddess to whom they are most devoted. Bahuchara Mata. For the Hijra, there is glorious Bahujhada Mata. She's the sacred Hindu goddess and divine patroness of the Hijra, and by extension, the LGBTQ community of India. Her worship is centered in Gujarat, uh, which is the largest concentration of Hijra population, but also in every other uh, large gathering of Hijra throughout the country. She is also worshipped quite fervently by women who are desperate to conceive and by men who are afraid they may be sterile. She is depicted quite beautifully. Um, She's seen as a beautiful woman, and her Vahana, which is the animal that she appears riding upon, um, if you've ever seen Hindu deities, they always are riding or sitting upon something, and it's uh, kind of like when you look at saints and the things that they hold in their hands. It's the symbols which tell you who they are and what their story is. And she sits upon a rooster, which in Hinduism uh, symbolizes innocence, She has four arms, she holds a sword in the top right, a text of scriptures in her top left, and her bottom left hand forms the mudra or sacred gesture of the Abhay which means the shower of blessings, and her bottom right hand holds a trident. Her origin myth tells us that she was once a human girl, belonging to the Charon caste, which are a people known for their honor and their devotion to truth. As the story goes, she was traveling in a caravan with her sisters when a group of thieves descended upon them, seeking to rob the caravan, kill the men, and trigger warning here, uh, we're going to talk sexual assault and violence for just a second, so feel free to jump past this part if that's going to be an issue for you. Um, of course they fully intended on raping the women now it should be understood that the Charon people had two very important things uh, that you needed to know about them it was considered uh, a like horrendous crime um, and, and a taboo act to ever shed the blood of a Charon person but also that they would never ever surrender when attacked or apprehended and would always instead opt to take their own lives Bahu was no different. She was not going to let the bandit Bapuyu uh, get her or her sisters, uh, but she was also a devotee of nonviolence, so she was not going to kill him either. So she snatched away his sword, pronounced a curse upon him and all his children before cutting off her breasts. That curse was the curse of impotence. You see, it's said that if this goddess was to appear in your dreams, it was known that she had marked you to leave your life, self-castrate, and live your life as a woman in devotion to her. It also meant that you were marked as impotent. She often appeared in the dreams of men who were sterile or impotent, commanding them to put on women's clothes, castrate, and live in devotion to her. But if they would refuse or try to get out of the deal, she would curse them to be born impotent in their next seven lifetimes. This is explained in a myth. Uh, There was a childless king who prayed before Bahuchara Mata for a son. She obliged, but the prince Jetho, who was born to the king, grew up to be impotent. One night, Bahuchara appeared to Jetho in a dream and ordered him to castrate himself, wear women's clothes, and become her servant. And it's believed that this is the origin story of the Hijra, of the cult of Bahucharamata, whose devotees are required to self-castrate and remain celibate, at least in legend. It should be noted that there are many Hijra today who do not adopt this practice for whatever reason, um, but there are several other beliefs that are much more collectively and strongly held uh, and are prescribed by the goddess. Um, For example, the commitment to nonviolence. Uh, Most, if not all, of the Hijra are vegetarians and consider the killing of any animal a major, major sin. Next, we're going back to the good old Fertile Crescent to spend some time with the major goddesses. You've got to understand that there's a continuum of ancient goddesses tied to the planet Venus that were the precursors for Aphrodite and Venus, and each of them ruled love, war, sovereignty, and several other things. And for each of these goddesses, there was a devoted retinue of androgynous priests. For example, during Sumerian times, there were the Gala. They were the priests of Inanna Ishtar. Now, Inanna and Ishtar are separate goddesses, but for the Sumerians, they had become sort of an amalgamation it had been joined, so it's often written Inanna-Ishtar. The gala wor- uh, worked in her temples, performing elegies and singing lamentations, and these gala took female names. They spoke the Amasal dialect reserved for women and are thought to have engaged in sacred sex work. During uh, the Akkadian period, Kurgaru and Asinu, which are names that you should probably recognize from the descent of Inanna from the last episode, were the priests of Ishtar, and they were known to dress in feminine finery and perform the sacred war dances in her temples. They were also believed to perform sacred sex work on behalf of the temples and would stand in the place of the goddess herself. In Babylonia, Sumer, and Assyria, it was these same individuals who performed religious duties in the service of Inanna and or Ishtar. Many worked as sacred sex workers, or what was known as hero duels, performed ecstatic dance, music and plays, they wore masks, and had gender characteristics of both men and women. In Sumer, they were given the cuneiform name of Ursal, which meant dog-man-woman, or Kergara, which meant man-woman. Modern scholars have struggled for a long time to describe them effectively, using whatever contemporary sex or gender categories were available to them at the time. So, of course, these people have been variously described throughout history as uh, living as women and using descriptors such as hermaphrodites, eunuchs, homosexuals, transvestites, effeminate men, and a range of other terms and phrases. So, next we're going to discuss the Magna Mater, the Great Mother, who we spoke about in our last episode during the discussion on Agdistus. Great Kaibale, Mountain Mother, is an Anatolian goddess and Phrygia's only known deity. She is always depicted as a powerful, stately, yet inscrutable woman seated upon a great throne and attended to by lions. Once Greek colonizers hit Asia Minor, she was immediately adopted and spread to mainland Greece around the 6th century BC. However, when she arrived in Greece, she was met with a bit of a mixed reception. The Greeks sought to assimilate her into uh, and along with other great mother goddesses like Gaia, Rhea, and Demeter, and places like Athens evoked her as their sovereign protector. The Greeks saw her as ruling over mountains, town and city walls, fertile nature, and wild animals. However, her true nature was really evident in her most celebrated rites, where she was the great exotic mystery goddess who arrives in a lion-drawn chariot to the sound of wild music, flowing wine, and an ecstatic procession that would make maenads look like nuns. You see, Kybale's priests were known as the Galli. Many myths place Addis, the son of Agdistus, who castrated himself at his own wedding after being driven mad as the founder of Cybele's priesthood. So who were the Galli? Well, let me tell you about the Sanguinaria, or Dies Sanguis, which was the day of blood. It was the one day of the year that new Galli could be born, you could say. This Roman festival was the compromise that had been struck by a very suspicious and deeply bureaucratic Roman government and the cults of Kybala itself as to just how their priesthood could maintain its numbers. At the Sanguinaria, the priestesses would gather in front of the temple to cheering crowds. On either side of the temple steps, the incumbent galley would be working the inductees into an ecstatic state with a frenzied cacophony of music and action, and especially in whipping them as they frantically danced in honor of their sovereign goddess. And when it was her turn, the inductee would take center stage on the steps, declare her devotion to the goddess, and would be handed a broken pottery shard or some such implement and castrate herself to the roar of the crowd. She would then, with all her might, hurl her severed genitals. If you were to be in the crowd and get pelted by someone's severed genitals, you might be a bit put off by it, but rest assured this was actually seen as one of the most powerful blessings the average Roman could hope for. But if she had trained, and I assume there were several Major League qualified pitchers in the bunch, her severed bits would fly past the crowd and make it through the open door or window of one of the houses or businesses which faced the temple. And if that happened, the people who lived or worked there became instantly and irrevocably responsible for the new priestess, for her medical care, her recovery, and furnishing her first garments as a priestess of Kaibale. Talk about state-sponsored transition, am I right? Various Roman sources referred to the galley as a middle or third gender, and their voluntary emasculation in service of Kaibale was said to give them the powers of prophecy. And they were truly a sight to behold. The galley had long, bleached hair. They wore heavy makeup, yellow priestess robes, golden pendants, earrings and bracelets, and sometimes a sort of turban, also in yellow. They were not always welcomed by everyone, especially in deeply patriarchal Greece and Rome, but the Gali proved themselves a force to be reckoned with. The Gali were headed by a high priestess called Attis, and the second-in-command was known as Patacus. And in 103 AD, the Patacus, who had been reigning at the time, traveled to Rome to address the Senate. The Plebeian Tribune fought tooth and nail to deny her the right to speak in front of the prestigious center of Roman life and law that was the Senate. That tribune died of a fever shortly after she was done speaking. Because they had performed their initiatory castration, they were forbidden from Roman citizenship and rights of inheritance, so they were essentially mendicants living off of alms and telling fortunes. Sound familiar? They were also only to leave the goddess complex a few days a year in April around the Megalassia, during which they did the majority of their fundraising. They were beheld by most with a mixture of fascination, scorn, and deep suspicion. However, given that they were the priests of a state cult, they were sacred and inviolate. No one could touch them. No one could offend them. And on the day of mourning for Attis, the sleeping god, they would run through the streets, wild and disheveled, shrieking and dancing to the noise of pipes and tambourines and flogging themselves bloody in ecstasy before their goddess. Cybele was so beloved and revered in the Greco-Roman world that her cult and the Gali who maintained it survived long after the Christianization of Rome. In fact, in the early imperial era, the Roman poet Milius added Caibalae as the 13th deity of the Zodiac. Each of the 12 houses of the Zodiac was seen as ruled by one of the Olympians, or De Consentis, and Cybele was added to the 5th house as a co-ruler of Leo, along with Jupiter, the king of the gods. That means that as Cybele's Leo rose above the horizon, Taurus, the bull, would be setting, so the lion dominates or devours the bull and this is an image which was widely represented or simulated throughout the megalasia the megalasia had two prime significances tied to this imagery first it was placed in the calendar usually around april 10th or 12th today's april 10th that's why i waited until now to do this episode and this would be the time when farmers were digging their vineyards breaking up their soil sowing their seeds and castrating their bulls and other animals Hmm second, around this time, the Torah Bolium had really taken its place as a prime ritual during the festival. It was performed by the Archgalley, who had been installed by Rome uh, to take the place of the Addis that we had previously spoken of, and so this had all become standard practice. The bull sacrifice itself was first attested to in Asia Minor, Cae homeland, however, at first it appeared in Rome in honor of Venus Caelestis, Venus Queen of Heaven. The public Torabolia beseeching Magna Mater's favor on behalf of the Emperor became quite popular, and its practice spread from Italy through Gaul, Hispania, and Northern Africa. It even went to go on uh, to take a whole new life as what we think may have been an updated version of the induction of the new priests of Kaibale, in which the Torabolia um, would be performed over a pit that the new priestess was standing in, so that the, the bull's blood, once it's thrown had been slit would pour all over her and she would be rebirthed oh and all this was going down around 200 ad so don't forget elagabalus was emperor by 218 uh if you don't know who she is let me tell you miss elagabalus was a good time gal this bitch was emperor only four years before being assassinated by her own guard thanks to her shady ass grandmother's plotting it's game of thrones worthy Historians write of Elagabalus as having, quote, "...abandoned himself to the grossest pleasures with ungoverned fury." And you're damn right about that, you random old man. Our girl demanded that everyone use lady instead of lord when referring to her, made numerous attempts at history's pretty much first uh, attestation of gender reassignment surgery, married five different women, including a vestal virgin, which was a big no-no, and had numerous male courtiers just running around the the palace naked. According to her, she was actually married to her chariot driver, a blonde slave from Caria named Heracles, who she tried to have named Caesar, uh, not renamed, like literally named Caesar as in being like second in command to the emperor. But that was before she met Zoticus, an athlete from Smyrna, who she married in a public ceremony in Rome, and then appointed him as master of the chamber. You can figure out what that means. During the day, she was letting women into the Senate and getting mom and grandma printed on coins and you know renamed Augusta. Same thing. Uh, oh, and for for her, a fun night out was painting her eyes, shaving her whole body, tossing on a wig, and turning tricks in taverns and brothels of Rome's red light district. She even. Got into a few knockdown dragouts with the other working girls because our girl Gabby was always running her damn mouth about how much trade she was turning out and how she was getting stacks and shit. Oh, and she literally sold a night with the emperor to the highest bidder and then ousted Jupiter as supreme god in favor of her own favorite god. You guessed it, Elagabalus, the foreign sun god. You're doing great, sweetie. Sort of like a cousin to the galley, the priests of Adder Goddess were also known to initiate themselves into the priesthood through ritual castration. Adar Goddess was Syrian in origin, attested to in her Roman title, Dia Syria, or Goddess of Syria. She was foremost known as a goddess of fertility, but even more so as the Baalat, or mistress, of her city and her people, responsible for their protection and longevity in a somewhat different way than a patron deity could be. She was long associated with fish and doves, and through an accident in history, came to be pictured as a glorious mermaid, though she was almost definitely a goddess of the standard anthropomorphic quality known to the Greeks and Romans. Her priests would play flutes and shake rattles, goddess of the standard anthropomorphic quality known to the Greeks and Romans. Her priests would play flutes and shake rattles. They would maintain a sacred lake or pond filled with the goddess's sacred fish, which were forbidden from being harvested or eaten, and care for the goddess's sacred doves, which could not be killed or eaten either. Okay. Flutes, rattles, birds, fish. No lions or bulls. Sounds like they might be a little bit more chill than the godly. Uh, they, too, were mendicants, although they left the temple a lot more than the Gali. They, were, uh, they would travel with an image of their goddess dressed in luxurious silks on the back of a donkey, which, like, glamour. Uh, when they arrived in a village square, they would gather up a crowd and perform various ecstatic rites for them in order to scrounge up a few coins, which I immediately took as a New Yorker to be like, You see, they would shout, scream, and howl as they wildly danced and gyrated in various states of undress. They would work themselves into a total fever pitch and then go on to bite themselves and each other's flesh and draw knives across their bodies to initiate a blood dance. Okay, maybe not as chill as we thought, but the priests of Erdoganis... Also, a bunch of lookers. They loved to go heavy on the makeup, they fancied the occasional turban, but unlike the galley, they chose saffron silks, uh, while a few of them would wear white tunics painted with purple stripes. The Greeks maintained a very interesting practice, it was known as Interpretatio Greca, through which they sought to understand the gods, mythos, practices, and ideas of other cultures, and they would do so by using Greek experience and storytelling as a basis of comparison. So whenever they would approach the unfamiliar, they would try and find an appropriate context for it in the stories they already knew. So my favorite for this, the origin story of the Daughters of Atargatis Goddess uh, comes from Lucian, and it goes something like this. The Assyrian queen, Stratonisi sees in a vision that she must build a temple at Heropolis to the goddess, Atargatis, Goddess, and so her king sends her there, accompanied by a young man named Kambabas. Now, old girl Stratonisi has a reputation about her, it turns out she likes to give them some head and then take off their heads. She would seduce men constantly and then turn around and tell the king that the men had overcome her, or had ravished her, or pursued her, and so they would be put to death. She was also supposedly absolutely stunning. Mmm, I don't know. I love a Black Widow, and I'm pretty sure this sounds a little classical-era slut-shamey to me. You decide. Anyway, Kambabas knows all about her tricks, so being totally logical, he castrates himself before the trip, puts his business in a box, and seals it. And so they're on the trip, everything's fine, they've set out, they found the location for the temple, they're getting everything underway, and then one night the queen tries to seduce him. And he's like, "Haha! surprise, I'm a bloody fucking mess. And she's like, uh, oh, okay, well, I guess let's be best friends. So basically they become constant companions and trusted confidants. Um, once the temple's finished, however, they head back home. And as soon as they get there, I guess because it's just out of habit, she immediately turns on him, says that he tried to rape her, and then he's arrested, tried, and sentenced to death. Kumbabas, however, calls for the sealed box to prove his innocence, and the king opens the box and shock horror blows chunks all over the queen, who he immediately has put to death for tricking him. Kumbabas is rewarded for telling the truth, and the temple gets a finishing touch a statue commemorating his heroic loyalty. And apparently, according to Lucian, the priests later on see it, take it as an ancient Osha poster, and boom, you get eunuch priests. I guess. Uh, There's another one where Kambabas, again, totally faultless, of course, falls prey to a strange foreign woman who beholds his perfect beauty, and she becomes violently enamored with him, and he finally has to reveal his quote-unquote true nature to her in order to get her off his back. What does she do? She immediately offs herself in grief. Jeez, lady. Then, apparently in total despair over his total incapacity for love as he puts it himself Kumbabas dons women's clothing so that no one would ever fall prey to the same trap again okay sis Next, we're going to move over to the Scythians. This was a sprawling group of Eurasian nomads, often rubbing shoulders with the Greeks, and it was the Greeks who witnessed among their number some individuals who became known as the Inari. These Scythian shamans were variously described as effeminate or androgynous, much in the way that Roman and Greek historians described the Galley. These holy people were known for their rituals of religious ecstasy, which were fueled by their expert use of entheogens and hallucinogens. They had no temples and no finery, and their gods were the forces of nature. The Greeks were still very much on that Interpretatio Greca mess, so when Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, wrote of the Anare's origins, he told the story of a group of Scythians and their sack of the Temple of Venus Castina. Who has been described in various ways, but in one very special account, uh, was described as the Venus who was patroness of feminine souls who were locked up in male bodies. Because of their violence, they and their descendants, according to Herodotus, were struck with the quote-unquote female sickness, and the NRA were born. He goes further to associate their patron goddess, Argampasa, with Aphrodite Urania, the bearded Aphrodite and protectress of all quote unquote unacceptable love. He went on to give this account of their religious practices. Quote There are many diviners among the Scythians, who divine by means of many willow wands, as I will show. They bring great bundles of wands, which they lay on the ground and unfasten, and utter their divinations as they lay the rods down one by one, and while still speaking, they gather up the rods once more and place them together again. This manner of divination is hereditary among them. The Anarii, who are hermaphrodites, say that Aphrodite gave them the art of divination, which they practice by means of lime tree bark. They cut the spark into three portions and prophesy while they braid and unbraid these in their fingers. The Greek physician, Hippocrates, of Hippocratic Oath fame, theorized that although the Inari of Scythia believed the cause of their effeminacy to be divine, that it must have been impotency. Because these savages were nomadic, they engaged in continuous horseback riding, which he theorized caused their men to be impotent, and therefore, they had to adopt feminine roles. Hello, police. I'm being mansplained to by a man who's been dead for 2,000 years. Our next story takes us to the western coast of South Africa. In the Ndongo Kingdom, which is present-day Angola, there were Chibados, or Kimbandas, a third-gender people who were assigned male at birth, yet lived most often as women. They were found spread across today's Angola and were first described in the west by Portuguese colonizers. The Chibados were immensely important. They were the shamans of the people, and they acted as the liaison between the living and the dead, performing burials for the people... Uh, but also, they were considered exceedingly wise, as they were key advisors to the king in both political and military matters. Portuguese missionaries described how the Chibados lived as women and were able to marry men, but without any apparent, apparent punishment. This must have been you know, shock horror to the Portuguese. Instead, such marriages were honored, and sometimes they were even prized. Chibados made up their own separate caste in society, and elders were affectionately referred to as Grandmother. Queen Nzinga was said to have had over 50 shibatos at her court, who she used as concubines, but we're not really sure for who. For her? For everybody? However, as the Portuguese colonizers gained a stronghold in Africa, colonial laws were put in place, which birthed homo and transphobia, where there had not been any at all. It's back to West, back to the West where anthropologist and archaeologist Miranda Stockett notes that several writers have felt the need to move beyond a two-gender framework when discussing pre-Hispanic cultures across Mesoamerica and concludes Uh, Overall, that the Olmec, Aztec, and Maya peoples understood, quote, more than two kinds of bodies and more than two kinds of gender. Anthropologist Rosemary Joyce agrees, writing that, quote, gender was a fluid potential, not a fixed category, before the Spaniards came to Mesoamerica. Childhood training and rituals shaped, but did not set, adult gender, which could encompass third genders and many sexualities, as well as male and female. At the height of the classical period, Maya rulers presented themselves as embodying the entire range of gender possibilities from male through female by wearing blended costumes and playing male and female roles in state ceremonies. Joyce notes that many figures of Mesoamerican art are depicted with uh, quote-unquote male genitalia and quote-unquote female breasts, while she suggests that other figures in which chests and waist are exposed but no sexual characteristics are marked may represent the third sex, uh, an ambiguous gender, or androgyny. Andean studies scholar Michael Horswell writes that third-gendered ritual attendees of Chicui Chinche, which was a jaguar god in Incan mythology, were, quote, "...vital actors in Andean ceremonies prior to Spanish colonization." Horswell goes on to elaborate, quote, these warmi, translated as men-women, shamans, uh, mediated between the symmetrically dualistic spheres of Andean cosmology and daily life by performing rituals that at times required same-sex erotic practices. Their attire served as a visible sign of a third space that negotiated between both the masculine and the feminine, the present and the past, and the living and the dead. Their shamanic presence invoked the androgynous creative force often represented in Andean mythology, end quote. Richard Trexler gives an, an early Spanish account of religious third-gender figures from the Inca Empire in his 1995 book, Sex and Conquest. And in each important temple or house of worship, they have a man or two or more, depending on the idol, who goes dressed in women's attire from the time they are children and speaks like them and in manner, dress, and everything else they imitate women. And with them, especially the chiefs and headmen have carnal foul intercourse on feast days and holidays, almost like a religious rite and ceremony. It should be noted that AMAB folks, A-M-A-B, those assigned male at birth, were not the only ones who would be engaged in sacred acts for the gods. In Japan, there were the Shirubiyoshi. The Shirubiyoshi were born of Japan's Heian period, a time of great cultural change. Many women became shirabyoshi, and they were not just in high demand, they were also held in high regard. They dressed in men's garments and performed various sacred dances in honor of the gods. The name Shirabiyoshi translates to white rhythm, a reference to the makeup that they wore and were famous for wearing and the slow, methodical rhythm which was signature to their dances. Incidentally, the white makeup they were so known for would later become the basis for the face of the geisha known so well today. Interestingly, due to their craft, they were required to be educated, including reading and writing, as these were crucial to their ability to perform. However, this also marked them as totally outside the norms of how women were treated and what they were allowed to access at this time in Japanese history. Many Shirabiyoshi went on to become renowned artists in poetry, music, song, and dance. They are also understood as having had a major influence in the development of no drama, as they were the creators of the kosumai, which was an unorthodox style of dancing, uh, which would later become a hallmark of kabuki theater. The attire they would don for performances was drawn from Shintoism, and it featured several key elements of male attire at the time. A Tate Eboshi hat, which was worn by samurai, as well as a Tachi, the samurai's sword, red Hakama, the iconic men's trousers, white and red Suikan, which were key male Shinto outfits, and a Kawahori, which is a hand fan that men would carry. As for their hair, the Shirabiyoshi had a very simple style. Like most women of the time, they would grow their hair as long as possible, some to the floor, and during performances, their hair would be pulled back in a very simple ponytail and secured with ribbon or cloth in a style known as tate- Take Naga. The Shirabiyoshi songs were largely based on Buddhist prayers, and it's actually theorized that many of them had gone on in a later period to be Shinto priests, or Buddhist monks. These songs were performed in a slow and rhythmic style, which would put great emphasis on the meaning of the words. Songs would be performed using their voices, drums, and flutes, primarily. They also performed imayo, which were poems drawing parallels between nature and social circumstances. It's never been made explicitly clear why the Shirabiyoshi took up their theatrical dressing, although some have insisted that they must have been transmasculine, others say that it's a reference to the uh, homo and bisexuality, which was said to be very prevalent among the samurai. We're not really sure. However, it should be mentioned that gender was nowhere near as strict as one might assume. Shintoism and Buddhism both have a lot to say about this. For example, in the Buddhist Vinaya, which are sacred scriptures from the 2nd century BC, said to be handed down by oral tradition uh, going all the way back to Buddha himself there are four main sex slash gender categories there are males, females ubato bianjananka which are people of a dual-sexual nature, and pandaka, which originally meant barren women and impotent men. However, as the Vinaya tradition developed, the term pandaka came to refer to a broad third-sex category, which encompassed intersex folks, as well as people who exhibited either physical or behavioral differences from their assigned gender. One of the most famous, and my personal favorite of the Shirabiyoshi, was the inimitable Shizuka. Mistress of the Greatest Samurai Ever, Minamoto Yoshitsune When Minamoto was exiled by his brother, the shogun Yoritomo, Shizuka ran off with him. Unfortunately, they became separated, and she was captured and brought back to Yoritomo. Later, news came that her beloved Yoshitsune, his wife, and children were slaughtered by Yoritomo's assassins, who had discovered their hideout. Yoritomo like the jackass that he was, demanded his brother's head to be brought before him, and once it was, he called for a great feast with it as the centerpiece in order to celebrate his brother's death. In the middle of the feast he demands in front of everyone assembled that Shizuka dance for the party. Shizuka, who was utterly devastated, bowed low and began her usual dance. Only this time she sang of the glory of her beloved fallen Minamoto Yoshitsune, instead of the classical ancient heroes of her usual songs. Instantly, she was immortalized in Japanese history, and what she sang and danced, the Yoshitsune Saga, became a standard performance for other shirobiyoshi for many ages, and it is still performed today by the geisha of Kyoto and Tokyo. I want to thank everyone for joining me again for another round of storytelling. I hope you found some myths here which help you navigate your own sense of self and of the world around us just a little easier. Please join us next week for episode four, Mulan's Comrades, in which we're going to cover the many reflections of transmasculine identity and experience. I hope you're staying at home, washing those hands, and cheering on the apocalypse. I know I am. So for now, be gay, do crime. The gods are always watching. Bye.